Last week we were talking from this passage here in John chapter 14 about the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. We called it the, the deity dilemma. And here we are on the next set of verses. And I want you to look at verse 12. It's interesting that in verse 10 and verse 11 as well, Jesus mentions something specific about his works. The works of the Father. The works of Jesus. The works. He said, if you're not going to believe my word, at least believe me for the works' sake. Look at my works. Look at the great miracles. We know that in Jesus' public ministry, at least we have recorded 37 miracles that Jesus performed publicly. Uh, We know that he performed many more than that. According to John 20, verse 30, here's what John said. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. And then one chapter later, the last verse of the Gospel of John, in chapter 21, verse 25, he said, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose, John said, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So we understand that Jesus performed plenty and multitude, multiplicity more miracles than what are just recorded in Scripture, but we do have 37 specific ones recorded in Scripture. And so he's talking about his, his works, the works that he performed. All of these signs is another word used here in the Gospels. Signs, these tokens, these evidences, these proofs of who he really is. The fact that he displayed his power in such a radical way to authenticate who he said that he was. So he's talking about his works. So I want you to notice what he says in verse 12. Now, it's very interesting, the first two words of verse 12, John 14, verse 12. Verily, verily. Now, that phrase is used in the Gospels, verily, verily. It's an old English way. This is a transliteration, a translation, an old English way of saying something like, truly, truly, surely, surely. Now, when those statements, that that, that word was made or or stated, it basically was Jesus' way of grabbing attention. Most of the time when he used it, It grabs attention. It reinforces the veracity and the truthfulness of what is about to be said. Sometimes these two words, verily, verily, it introduces to the reader a different way of thinking. Sometimes it introduces a concept that's being communicated that seems so radical or difficult to believe. So Jesus says, Truly, truly, surely, surely, as hard as this is for you to believe, this is the absolute truth. And so that's what he's saying. He's about to make a claim. He's about to make a statement that to us and to the casual reader, it may seem like that it's really not true. Or it's hard to believe. I've never heard that before. Verily, verily, Jesus said, verse 12. Listen, listen. (laughs) This is true. This is true. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do 
shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Because I, I go to my Father. Verse 13, and whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Would you go back to verse 12 and notice the phrase that Jesus said? He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And then he goes a step further, and no wonder he says, no wonder he uses the verily, verily. Because what he's about to say seems radical. Lord, is this really accurate? Are you really saying this? Greater works... You mean to tell me, Lord Jesus, of all the works that you've performed, are you saying that those who follow you, those who believe you, those who are your children, part of your family, that they're going to be able to do the same, not just the same kind? He says that. Then he goes a step further and he says, we're going to be able to do more? We're going to be able to do greater works than what you've done? So what is Jesus saying? Well, he says that the one who believes on him, his followers, will do not only the same great works that he performed, but actually perform greater works than what he did. So just stop just for a minute and consider all the mighty works that Jesus performed. Think about it. Healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, curing leprosy, Causing the crippled to walk, suspending the laws of nature, exercising his authority over natural elements like storms, wind, water, waves. And here's a biggie. Casting out demons. Raising the dead. It doesn't get more radical than that. So here's Jesus saying that the works that I perform, you're going to be able to do greater works. Does that mean, preacher, that I'll be able to do all of these and more? What is Jesus really saying to his disciples? What is he saying to his disciples and what's he saying to you and I? I want to show you today from the text that these greater works will involve and incorporate three elements that he reveals to us right here. And I want you to listen very carefully so we can discern from the Spirit of God, what Jesus is actually saying. First of all, I want you to know that the first element is the advancement of the gospel. So what does greater works actually refers to? Well, I want to submit to you this morning that it refers to the salvation of souls, the propagation of the gospel, and sharing our faith and sharing Jesus and getting the gospel to the nations. I don't do a lot of this, but I want you to listen because what I'm about to say, I know you're going to question because I would question it. Because just at face value, when you read the text, it just seems like that all of these radical, outstanding miracles that Jesus performed, that what he's saying here is a guarantee, is a blank check for us to be able to just upon our own desire, just to go out. Man, why not? Hey, if this is true, why can't we go to Wayne Memorial right now and clear the hallways? 
right? Why can't we go to the nursing homes and why can't we go to the Bryan Center and any other assisted living facility? Uh, oh, why, can't we, why can't right now, if this is true, why can't we by faith claim this and say, Lord, since you raised the dead, then I'm going to go down to the funeral homes in Wayne County and I'm going I'm to take care of business. Is that what he's saying? Well, I've heard some and you have too, who, 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 who want to say that this is, that's exactly what he's saying. Let's have a healing line. Let's, 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 let's bring all the sick folk and let's, let's do this and let's do that. I mean, if Jesus did it and Jesus told us right here we'd have greater power, then why can't we do that? Y'all see where the conflict can be? So what's he really saying? Well, listen to the words of some scholars, and they're true scholars. Listen to the words of some Bible, some theologians, some of those, uh, those who have analyzed the text to a much greater degree than your pastor, but I have analyzed it, and I've tried to study, pray, ascertain, uh, ascertain the meaning, and think through what Jesus is saying. One writer, Adam Clark, said that perhaps the greater works refer to the immense multitudes that were brought to God by the ministry of the apostles. By the apostles was the doctrine of Christ spread far and wide. While Christ confined his ministry chiefly to the precincts of Judea, it is certainly the greatest miracle of grace to convert the unsaved from sin to holiness. This was done in numberless case by the disciples who were endued with power from on high. It must be understood, ladies and gentlemen, today for you and I that surely Jesus didn't mean greater works in the sense of greater in magnitude or greater in importance. The term greater has an expansive implication since the work and mission of the disciples would be now to take the gospel message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. One writer called this the post-Easter mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? What was the mission of the apostles? What did Jesus send them out to do? Did he send them out just to heal and perform miracles? No, he did not. He sent them out to advance the kingdom of God. To advance the gospel. And to get the gospel to the nations. To get the gospel to the world. Matthew Poole said that this statement is rather to be understood of their success in carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. By which the whole world almost was brought to the obedience of the faith of Jesus Christ. Even Charles Spurgeon listened to the words of Spurgeon, as God, the Lord Jesus, not only had infinite power in himself, but he was able to delegate that power to others. His apostles wrought great miracles, and his believing disciples worked mighty spiritual works so that more converts were brought to the faith of Jesus by their testimony. William Burkett said Jesus is referring in this statement to the conversion of the Gentiles. When Peter converted 3,000 in one sermon, then Christ made good on his promise, Burkett said. 
Christ, all this time in his earthly ministry, he said, was angling for a few fishes and catched 120, according to Acts 1. While Simon Peter comes with his dragnet, Burkett said, and catches 3,000 all at one cast. I like how he said that. A.T. Robertson, the noted Greek scholar, said that Jesus is not necessarily saying greater miracles and not greater spiritual works in quality, but greater in quantity. And he uses Simon Peter at Pentecost and Paul on his missionary tours. One writer said that it's not greater in power, but greater in extent. The spiritual miracle of salvation, his followers, and I quote, would spread the gospel throughout the world. He's not promising greater quality of works, but greater quantity compared, comparing his earthly reach, which was somewhat limited geographically, to the regions impacted by the witnesses of the disciples as well as the multiplicity of gospel opportunities that you and I have in our generation. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Let's just keep it in the context of the gospel. Let's keep it in this context of witnessing and getting the gospel out and advancing the kingdom of God through sharing the message of Christ. Look at all the tools and methods that you and I have now to do that that are unique even to our generation. Surely Jesus didn't have the efforts and the ability of mass communication. Brother, forget newspaper. He didn't have that. They didn't have television, radio, the media. They didn't have social media. They didn't have all the effort, all the things, all the methods that you and I have at our disposal right now. But you know what they did have? Watch me. I'm afraid what they did have We're not using. They had word of mouth testimony. Anybody in here this morning? Huh? We're not at a chess match, all right? So you can make some noise, I promise. It's okay. You see, in its context and in its application, if it doesn't mean anything else, And it probably means more than what I'm saying. But I know at least, at least greater works refers to getting out the gospel. So who's this promise to? Well, he says here in verse 12, those that believe. Those who are Christians. Those who are saved. The statement focuses, one writer said, on the fruitfulness that anyone who has faith in Jesus can enjoy. It's an expression that embraces all believers, not just the apostles. So everybody, all believers, if you're saved this morning, say amen. You fit in this category. Jesus is saying to you that you, you have the capability and the ability to communicate the gospel and to take Jesus to the world and to see converts made and to see people get saved through your witness and your testimony and your prayers and your effort. So how's this promise fulfilled in us? Well, it's interesting. Jesus says all this is possible because I'm going away to my Father. He says that in verse 12. 
I'm going back to the Father. And you know this, that when he went back to the Father, who did he send as his replacement? He sent the Comforter. He sent the Holy Spirit of God. And he's about to begin a lengthy passage of Scripture that we're going to talk about next week where he goes in and talks about the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. One writer said it's not the believer himself who does these greater things. It's God working in and through the believer. Mark 16, 20, the Lord working with them. Philippians 2, 13, for it is God which worketh in you. And we know that he works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have this promise promised to us, this power promised to us because Jesus, in fact, right now is seated now at the right hand of God the Father. That's the position of power. So his exit from this world physically meant the entrance of the Holy Spirit into this world, into us. And we have the power of Jesus flowing in us right now who enables us and equips us to do just what he's commanded us to do and told us to do right here. Jesus' personal ministry in the flesh was a local ministry. You see that? But only under the coming of the Holy Spirit could it then be universal. So if nothing else, greater works means the advancement of the gospel. So I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question about this point. Are you truly performing greater works than Jesus? In other words, what did you do this week that advanced the gospel? Think about that just a minute. Who did you share the gospel with? What lost person did you pray for? What have you done this week in the last seven days that contributed to lost people being saved and the nations coming to salvation in Christ? What have we done to reach our neighborhood this week? Did you give a gospel tract to anybody? Did you give a personal testimony? Did you give a word for the Lord? Did you invite somebody to church? Did you give somebody a little booklet to read? Did you send somebody a text that lifted up Jesus that drew their heart to Christ? That's the greater works. And hear me, gang. Hear me. Hear me. Hear me. Here's what I've been taught as a believer, and I believe it's true and it's taught in the Bible. There's no sense me asking Jesus to help me do the unknown or to reveal the unknown when I'm not doing what, it, what is known. Well, I'll tell you what, preacher. I want us to go deeper, deeper in the Word. Well, let's go. I'll go deep with you. But are we doing what we know already right now? You see? I'll tell you, I, I mean, I, I want to argue and debate with you, CP, about what this verse really means. I believe, I believe that we can do miracles. Okay, great, great. 
Are you doing the one miracle that we know he's told us to be a part of? Let's go deep. You won't get any deeper than sharing Christ with the world. And if somebody, if somebody balks, if a Christian balks and wants to argue theologically about Christ's burden and passion for the salvation of sinners, then gang, I love you and I tell you the truth in love. But you got bigger issues than that. You got more fish to fry. What I'm talking about today is so crystal blooming clear. All of us as believers should be and can be a part of the advancement of the gospel. That's the greater that it at least it means that right there. But he doesn't stop there. Because greater works, yes, it means the advancement of the gospel at least. But also, look at verse 13. It means and includes and incorporates, here we go, the adoration of the Father. Now listen carefully. The adoration of the Father. Look back at verse 13 and see what Jesus says. John 14, 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, the guiding principle of the believer's life and service must be the same guiding principle that Jesus followed throughout his life. Well, what principle was that, preacher? It was the glorification of the Father in every single thing that he did. How many times do we read in the Gospels Jesus saying, I do what pleases the Father, that the Father may be glorified. John 9, he says, I do always those things which please him. John 8, 29. I do always, always, always I do those things which please the Father. You see, let me make this statement to you, then we're going to wrap up. Listen to this. Write this on your heart or on your paper somewhere. Listen carefully. The Lord's highest priority, listen, is his own glory. Not my glory, his glory. Not my comfort, his glory. Not my agenda, his glory. The highest priority of God is himself. You're like, wait a minute, I disagree with that. God's highest priority is sinners. No, it's not. God's highest priority is himself. And his own glory He's more interested in his glory than anything else in this world. Why? Because he's the sovereign God. And it's okay. He's not being selfish. He's being God. Say, well, man, that that, that just doesn't sound right. He's God. There's nobody close to him. That's why he has sovereign right to demand His own glory. You see, here's what I'm afraid of as believers. That our concept of God is far too small. 
And our concept of our own importance is far too big. None of us are the center of the universe. He is. And God is all about his glory. That's why he made the earth for his glory. I thought it was because he was lonely. No. There's no insufficiency in the character of God. Never has been, never will be. God didn't create Adam because God got lonely. God created Adam for his own glory. God made the fishes and the birds and the earth and the waterfalls and the clouds and the mountains for his own glory. God sent Jesus to the cross for his own glory. God created you and I for his own glory. And so he says, I know this about the greater works, Jesus said. It's going to involve the advancement of the gospel. It's going to involve the adoration of the Father. In other words, if what you're doing and what you're asking and what you're planning and what you're dreaming lifts up the glory of God, you go for it. So let me ask you, is your life really bringing glory to the Father alone? Or are we trying to bring glory to God and ourselves at the same time? Are you pleasing God in your life? Is the Father being regularly and routinely lifted up in your life and through your life? And then I close with this. That it absolutely incorporates the approval of the Son. The advancement of the gospel. The adoration of the Father. But look at verse 13. Jesus said, whatsoever ye shall ask. Are you still with me? Say amen. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do. Look at verse 14. If any shall, if you shall ask anything. Now here's the operative phrase. In my name. Now gang, question. Is that just saying that when we go to prayer, as long as we tack the little in Jesus' name on the end of it, that we're good? Isn't that what we do? We pray, we go through our list, go through our list, we do this, we say this, we do, and then all of a sudden, right before the end, right before we say amen, we say what? In Jesus' name. Why do we do that? It's not wrong to do that, it's not unscriptural to do that, but do we really know what we're doing? You see, in Jesus' name, it's basically a way of asking with the approval and the authority of Jesus. It's like saying, Lord, as I come before you and as I bring you these requests and these things, as I talk to you about these things, it's like saying, may this all come under the approval of your name and your plan. It's asking Jesus to put his signature, I'm left-handed, Jesus probably is too. Anyway, to put, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. To put his approval, his signature on it. Now, Lord, I want you to, Lord, I'm asking you to put your signature on this prayer. I'm asking you to put your signature on this plan, your signature on this idea. Lord, I want you to put your name on it. D.A. Carson said, prayers in his name are prayers that are offered 
in thorough accord with all that his name stands for. And then he goes on to say this, and I want you to listen carefully. His name is not used as a magical incantation. Genie Jesus, we've talked about that before, right? Rub the bottle, rub his belly, mutter, mutter his name, and then expect carte blanche that, poof, whatever I've prayed for, it's going to happen. That's not biblical. That's not what he means by praying in Jesus' name. It means praying in recognition that the only approach to God the Father that those who pray, enjoy, and have is coming through the Lord Jesus himself. It's, Lord, I'm asking all this because I won't. I really, as he taught us to pray in the model prayer, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I, I don't want to ask you for anything. I don't want to do anything, dream anything, plan anything, execute anything that you, Lord, can't put your signature on. That's what it means. David Dockery said to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in accord with Jesus' will and mission. Such a prayer request is far different from an idea of prayer, listen, as some type of shopping list handed to God that he then is duty-bound to perform. I like that statement, right? Okay, Lord, I know you're the big Santa Claus. Here's my Christmas list. Here, in Jesus' name. That's not what he's talking about. Robert Wilkins said these verses are not a promise that all prayers of Christians will receive a yes answer from Jesus. Jesus gave us a condition for answered prayer. What is that? It's prayers that are consistent with his nature and character. Those are the only ones that get a thumbs up. You see what he's saying? Let me ask you this as we close. Are you praying prayers that Jesus can put his approval on? (laughs) Are you asking for things that fall under his plan and his will? Are you asking things big enough and bold enough that would fit in this? Someone wrote the other day, they said, when's the last time that you prayed such a bold and big prayer for the glory of God that God in heaven silenced the angels and said, did y'all just hear what he asked for? First and foremost this morning, I know this, the greatest need that anybody has in this room is for Jesus Christ. It's to be saved.